When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. On today's show, Oliver Bullo, the investigative journalist, discusses his book, Butler to the World, which details how Britain's financial system has become a go to destination for processing the wealth of oligarchs and the world's super rich. Oliver Bullo is a Welsh-born writer whose work has focused on Russia for much of the past two decades, regularly appearing in titles including The Guardian and The New York Times. He's also the author of books including 2018's Moneyland, an expose of global money laundering and tax evasion, and his new book Butler to the World, which tells the story of the UK's role in accommodating oligarchs and vast sums of foreign wealth. Our host for today's discussion is the investigative journalist and broadcaster, Manveen Rana. Here's Manveen with more. Oliver, welcome. Your new book couldn't have been timed better. I imagine your publishers must be delighted because you've published the book just as the UK government finally starts to crack down on the oligarchs that you've been warning about for years. How did that feel for you? Yeah, I mean, it, it does feel a little bit like I've been banging on about this for everyone, to, for, to everyone, and no one's been listening for ages. And then suddenly everyone wants to talk to me at once, which is uh, wonderful, actually. It's never too late to do the right thing. And I'm glad that the government is finally talking about this. I have a, a good friend, Oli Carroll, who writes for The Economist. He's currently in, in Ukraine. And he, he, he won, I thought, won Twitter for me anyway on Thursday saying, been wondering why the British government had been taking so long to sanction Roman Abramovich. It just turned that they were waiting for publication day for Oliver Bullough's book. So um, there you go. Uh, nice of Boris Johnson to lay on my own little publicity coup. So thank you. Thank you, Mr. Johnson, for that. Tell us a bit about, you know, your book has a very striking title. What exactly do you mean by Butler to the World? Well, the, the title, it, it's an interesting one. It comes from a conversation I had a few years ago with an American academic. Often people who come to the UK who want to investigate kleptocracy or money laundering here, they often get in touch with me and ask me to meet up with them and, and tell them what's going on. And he was particularly interested in Chinese money and how Chinese money moves around the world. You know, we're currently obviously talking about, you know, kleptocracy in Russia and oligarchs in Russia, but, you know, China is, is a far greater source of, of kleptocratic cash and it does get invested in, in London, in, in other major cities and, and you know, and invested in the same way. It's hidden behind shell companies and, and the usual sort of paraphernalia of trusts and foundations and limited partnerships and so on. So he was keen to know what efforts are being made in the UK to find this money and I think actually what he really wanted was some contacts. He didn't want to talk to a journalist. He wanted to talk to you know people with, with real power. And so he kept asking me for the equivalence of 
people he's spoken to in America. You know, who's the equivalent of the prosecutors in the Southern District of New York? You know, who's the who, what, what politicians are making the most waves on this matter? You know, who's what what investigators are the best? And and every question he asked me, I had to tell him that that those people don't exist. You know, they just aren't. And um, and and. You know, I think he suspected that I was holding out on him, that I had these contacts, but I wasn't sharing. And I really wasn't. I'm always happy to share. You know, I get people share with me, share and share alike. By all means, if I know people, I'll put people in touch with them. And um, and eventually I had to stop him and say, look, you, you know, you keep asking me these questions like there's some magic password. And all you have to say is the right combination of words. And, and I will open my contact book and, and the details will just pour out. But these people don't exist. And, and then I was just trying to, trying to explain it. And I was like, you see, in America, you're, you're the, you know, the, the policeman of the world. You have these people, but we don't have them. We're, we're the, and what were we? We're, we're the butler to the world. And, and why butler? Well, because we help people get away with stuff. We solve people's problems. You know, if you're a, a, a mafiosi, we, we move your money. If you're an oligarch, a mobster, whoever you are, we move your money. And But we're not a conciliary, right? Because that sounds a bit crude, like someone who might be in the back room of an Indian restaurant in Brooklyn, you know. Uh, we're not that. We, you know, we look at, all, look at all our enablers. They're impeccable. They've got lovely suits. They speak, you know, cut glass accents. They, they go to the opera. They send their children to the right school. So, so what's that? You know, what's a conciliary with a, with a tailcoat? Well, it's a butler, you know. So... So someone came up with this term. I, I mean, I use a lot of references to Jeeves and Worcester in the book. Um, someone came up with this term. It wasn't me. Um, dark Jeeves a couple of days ago. And I, and I wish I'd thought of that. We're, you know, we're the dark Jeeves, the dark side of Jeeves. And actually, though, actually, and I've fallen out slightly in, in, a, in, a, in an amusing way with a friend of mine who's a big Jeeves and Worcester fan. If you do read the Jeeves and Worcester books and read them and just look at what happens and sort of ignore the, 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 the comedy and the light tone. <laughs> Jeeves, is, Jeeves is pretty dark. Um, the stuff he arranges for Bertie Wooster is kind of amazing. There's, there's one adventure when, when a policeman is causing trouble and Jeeves just knocks him out with a cop <laughs> um, from, from behind without any warning. There's another one when he needs a bit of information from the police and, and Jeeves bribes the policeman. And, and, uh, so and, never and afraid Bertie of a, says, a little criminality. Well, well, exactly. You know, what, what needs doing, Jesus is prepared to do it. You know, he arranges an illegal bookmaking ring for another friend of, of, of um, Worcester's. He's prepared to steal things, you know, use inside information to obtain an advantage. You know, Jeeves is a, is a pretty hot enabler. If he were around now, you know, Jeeves <laughs> would be, you know, the right-hand man of an oligarch and, and would be, you know, very much at the top of the game. He'd be on speed dial. And for, for Britain, when does that begin? I mean, I was really that, that was really interested in your book about just how old this tradition of being chief launderer and sort of well-tailored fixer to the kleptocracy actually begins. I mean, this is it's a really interesting question because, you know, it, it is if there is a scam, and I come across a lot of scams and investigate a lot of scams, it is extraordinary how there is always a British angle. You know, it might be a British shell company, it might be a British bank, it might be a British lawyer who's attempting to silence the journalists who are attempting to investigate it. It, it is, you know, incredible how, you know, like like the words through a stick of rock, the Union Jack runs through financial crime. And, and obviously, it wasn't always like this, because, you know, Britain didn't used to enable things you know, crimes for other people. We did it on our own account, right? You know, what, what Putin's currently doing in Ukraine, that's what we used to do. We were the, the biggest empire in the world. And if a country stood up to us, we bombarded them until they stopped. So when did it start? And well, it's obviously a post-imperial thing, right? You know, this isn't something we used to do when we were an empire because we were already the biggest bully. And so the, the question was trying to find that moment when we switched round from being an empire to being an enabler. 
And there's this great line from Dean Acheson, who used to be the Secretary of State of the United States, when he said, I think in 1962, Britain has lost an empire and has not yet found a role, which is this, you know, it, he meant it as a sort of rather throwaway remark, but it, it, it hits, you know, very much on a, on a sore point in British post-imperial prestige. And, and, and people have been going on about it ever since, I think much to Dean Acheson's irritation. And actually, we'd already found the role by then. It happened in, in the mid-1950s during the Suez crisis, when the financial markets in the city of London seized up because the government put some severe restrictions on the use of, of sterling to finance trade, just to try and support sterling because it was under such heavy speculative pressure. And at that point, banks in London, merchant banks in London, realised that if they used dollars rather than pounds to finance trade, then they could continue in business. And it, was, it wasn't a deliberate discovery. It was an accidental thing done very much in extremis. But if you use dollars rather than pounds, suddenly all restrictions, regulations, and rules disappeared. At the time, there were some quite heavy restrictions placed by the US government on the use of dollars. If you made a loan in dollars, there were limits on what the interest rate was that you could charge which is extraordinary to think about now. But at the time, the governments were very keen to, to really you know, control what was done with wealth. Um, you couldn't move money freely from country to country because of attempts to try and you know, support the sort of sovereignty of financial markets and so on. You know, there was quite fierce democratic oversight of wealth as a, as a legacy of the Second World War when there'd been concern about speculative capital moving around and destabilizing countries and, and causing the Great Depression. So London created this, this loophole in uh, financial regulations. And they needed a term for it that created essentially a legal space. It wasn't a geographical space because it was still in London, but a legal space where there were no rules. And, and they needed a term for that. And there already was essentially a legal concept for a place with no rules, where, where the rules of no country apply. And that's a, 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 from maritime law, what happens beyond the horizon? It's offshore. Um, if things happen offshore, there are no rules. So they adopted this maritime legal term offshore to describe what they were doing in the financial markets. And it was an incredibly powerful tool. And just to give a demonstration of how powerful it was, the first dollars that ended up in this offshore market in, were brought by a Soviet state bank, the Moskovsky Narodny Bank, which had been keeping its dollars in New York, became concerned about diplomatic tensions if there was, there was a, a crisis between the USSR and the USA, that their dollars would be frozen and they wouldn't be able to operate in the international markets. So they moved the dollars from New York to London, where London banks discovered that these dollars could be used profitably to undercut American regulations. And if you look at what's happening there, this, is, this was 1955, the year before the Suez crisis. Stalin had only been dead for two years. This is the height of the Cold War. The Cuban Missile Crisis hasn't, hasn't happened yet. And then, even then, the city of London is making money from being the butler to the Soviet Union and helping it to undermine the regulations of our closest ally, the United States. We were helping, supposedly, our geopolitical enemy to undercut the regulations of our protector and friend, the USA. And that is, certainly in the light of what's happening at the moment with oligarchs, kind of extraordinary that for all that time, we have been willing to make money to earn fees from undermining the regulations of our friends. And, and this just... It was just the beginning, really. You know, offshore as a concept proved extremely flexible and extremely lucrative. You know, th those markets, the offshore dollar markets spread. Uh, they, they brought in banks from Japan, from continental Europe, from, from the USA, and, and really essentially 
eroded any possibility of, of governments to impose these kinds of democratic control over wealth that there had been. So we were acting as the butler and setting wealth free, allowing people with money to move it where they wanted to move it, to invest it where they wanted to invest it, to, to pay taxes or not as they wished. Essentially, we, we empowered wealthy people to break free of the restrictions imposed on them by the New Deal in the, in the, in the US and, and various equivalents in Europe and Japan and elsewhere. So that's what I mean by being a butler. Wealthy people had a problem and their problem was that they had to pay tax and they had to obey regulations set by governments which limited their ability to maximize their profits from their wealth. We found a way for them to evade those restrictions. We, we earned fees from it and they made huge profits. And that's the origin of the butlering industry. The origin of the butling, butlering industry is the origin of the, of the offshore market in London. And your, your book does a brilliant job of sort of explaining how we've kind of turned that into an art form. You know, Britain and British territories and dependencies have become completely enmeshed in some fairly questionable financial practices. I mean, tell us a bit about the British Virgin Islands and how that's somehow become sort of a, a sunny place for shady money. Uh, the British Virgin Islands is a really fascinating place. It's quite famous now, infamous certainly, as um, a leading shell company haven, a place, a leading incorporation haven for people who want opaque companies to hide their wealth behind. But it used to be perhaps the most obscure territory in the entire British Empire. It was incredibly poor. Um, it was only really British because no one else wanted it. It wasn't, you know, Britain didn't particularly go out of its way to own the BVI. We just ended up with it. Um, if you look at in Hansard, the record of, of the House of Commons, and search for references to the British Virgin Islands, for decades, the only reference ever would be someone would refer to it in another context. And then some waggish member of parliament would bring up this favourite joke that they always told that no one knew where the British Virgin Islands were, but they must be far from the Isle of Man. And then all the, you know, all the honourable members would chuckle, ha ha ha, weren't they all witty? And then they'd move on and talk about something else. No one knew where the BVI even were. But in the 1970s, when most Almost all the British colonies had become independent. The last colonies in the Caribbean were preparing for independence, places like St. Kitts and Nevis, which were you know, the last ones to, to break free. The BVI gained a degree of autonomy. And so it too was moving towards independence, but it was going to be a slow process because it was so small and so poor. But there were bankers and lawyers in America who were looking for clever ways to expand this offshore idea, clever ways to uh, avoid taxes. And they'd been using Curaçao, which is a Dutch territory in the Caribbean. But the problem with Dutch people is they do insist on speaking Dutch. And so they wanted an equivalent where people would speak English. And they just rang up the, the, the legal practice in uh, Tortola, in the BVI, spoke to Michael Regals, who is a, a lawyer now. I had a long time chatting to him. He's a, he's a very lovely, very charming guy who told me all about this. They rang up and just said, we need a company. Could you set one up for us? And they'd never done this before, but it was pretty straightforward. So they set up a company and, and allowing Americans to dodge taxes. Now, the American government took very unkindly to this because this took off quite fast as a business stream. They, they took unkindly to this and they cancelled the treaty under which these companies worked. So the American lawyer called back and said, well, how about we write a new company law whereby we, we just create something totally bespoke, which will do the same job in a new way? 
And you hear about lobbying, about you know business interests having too close a connection to politicians. This goes way beyond lobbying. There was five uh, people, the, the government's attorney general, three lawyers from the BVI and a US lawyer. Between them wrote this law completely. You can't see where one of them started and the other stopped. They faxed it to and forth. In fact, the US lawyers sent a computer to the BVI so that the, the people in the BVI would be able to work efficiently and type up his suggestions. And having done this, they created this bespoke law, which was very useful for American clients but not just American clients. Um, in Panama at the time, the, the government had been overthrown by a US invasion because they'd got too corrupt for anyone to tolerate. So all that business came to the BVI. Um, Britain, when Britain said it was handing back Hong Kong to uh, mainland Chinese control, a lot of Chinese businessmen from Hong Kong became concerned and they brought their business to the BVI. The BVI really took off. And, and the reason that how it took off, I mean, it, you know, it is very, very lovely. I enjoyed my stay there. It is just a, a scattering of small islands in the Caribbean Sea. But what it provided was impenetrable legal structures, which you could keep your property within and no one could see who owned it. It provided secrecy. So it is selling secrecy and it's selling essentially protection from other countries' laws. And that's what Britain does. We, we provide a haven for people who are concerned about other countries' laws. And we say, if you come to us, we will provide you with protection, whether that's protection from scrutiny uh, in the BVI because of its secrecy le legislation or protection from legal processes in the UK because of our you know, strong uh, property laws or so on. That's what our butlering does. Surely now, if we're serious about sanctions on oligarchs, you know, shouldn't we be chasing up some of those loose ends too? Shouldn't we be sort of forcing more transparency and freezing of assets in places like BVI? Or should we not be doing more about, about some of that? Yeah, I mean, the government has talked a pretty good game in the last few weeks about uh, going after the oligarchs. I'm, I have to say I'm not yet convinced that they mean it. Um, just remember that, that it was just in January that a government minister, Lord Agnew, resigned live, as it were, in, in the House of Lords because of the government's failure to take economic crime seriously and its failure to bring forward the economic crime bill that it had promised. You know, just two years ago, Boris Johnson dismissed the Intelligence and Security Committee's Russia report which is available online. I recommend everyone read it. It's, it's about 50 odd pages long. Very sober analysis of the threat in many different departments of the UK posed by Russian interference, including the, the threat posed by Russian oligarchs and, and the corrupting influence on UK politics, UK society and UK economy. Boris Johnson dismissed this report uh, as an attempt to delegitimize Brexit uh, by Islingtonian Remainers which is, was spectacularly unfair because A, it's a very careful report and B, it only mentions Brexit twice. And one of those is in a footnote, which in the context of when it was written, it's not surprising it mentions Brexit. It's, let's face it, a, you know, a, a core issue going on in Britain at the time. So you know, he is not someone who has taken the influence of wealthy Russians or wealthy anyone seriously. I mean, he, he elevated Yevgeny Lebedev, the, the son of a, of a former KGB officer to the House of Lords. That is not someone clearly who is desperately concerned about wealthy Russians and their influence in this country. However, uh, credit where it's due, um, some things have been done in the last few weeks which are quite good. The Economic Crime Act, which received royal assent in the middle of the night a couple of days ago. I rather hope it wasn't Her Majesty herself who was kept up till one in the morning to do that. So I hope there's some automated process. The Economic Crime Act does begin to impose transparency on the offshore companies that own about 87,000 properties in England and Wales. And those Offshore companies do provide oligarchs with the sort of means to hide their assets behind, to hide their ownership behind. But it is sadly, at the moment, an extremely flawed system. Companies House, our own 
com- corporate registry is used regularly, almost invariably actually, for the main for the, to provide money laundering vehicles to get money out of Eastern Europe. And one of the big flaws with it is that um, it is astonishingly easy to avoid the regulations put in place to discover who owns its companies. Um, if, for example, you were to own your company jointly with four close family members, all of you would own 20% of the company and that would put you below the threshold of declaring who actually owns the company. So if any of these oligarchs have four close family members or four employees who are prepared to own the company with them, then they don't have to declare that they own their property. That's just one loophole that allows them to get around these rules. So though the government has done bits and bobs, what it's done so far has been desperately inadequate to the scale of the challenge. The real problem is that we have these very, very under-resourced law enforcement agencies. You know, the, the, we have a new economic crime levy, which will bring more money into fighting economic crime, about £100 million a year, which is you know, a game changer in terms of what has gone into it in the past. But if you compare that to, say, how much we spend on fighting terrorism, um, which is £900 million a year, you know, that clearly the threat posed to the UK by kleptocracy is a similar order to that posed by Terrorism, if you look at what Putin is doing in Ukraine now, I think few people would doubt that. And yet we don't resource it anything like as generously. Even with all the new money going into it, it's going to be a very long way behind. And until we take it as seriously as that, if we take until we take investigating oligarchs' money as seriously as they take defending their money, we are never going to come close to doing anything about it. And I, I would say that the reason we haven't done that is because we have prioritized being a butler and helping the oligarchs get away with from other, other countries' uh, regulations rather than prioritised enforcing our own regulations and worrying about things for our own account. And, you know, as you say, it, it has felt sort of almost insincere at times, you know, the, the sort of the delayed reaction from the government. But we are now sort of saying we're, we're, we're blazing a trail, we're, these are world-beating sanctions. How do we actually compare to the rest of Europe and to America? And what exactly do the sanctions mean? You know, sort of, are they just freezing assets? Or, you know, as we've seen in places like Italy, do they actually take oligarchs' boats and houses off them? You know, could we plausibly put Ukrainian refugees into them or or are they just on hold for a while? Yeah, I'd, I'd say one thing that the world that the government has been world beating at is is publishing a lot of gimmick gimmickry in the form of, of policy suggestions like housing refugees mm. in oligarchs' houses. Um I, I would love to be proved wrong, but I would say I'm 100% sure that isn't going to happen. We didn't even house bombed out EastEnders in big West End mansions during the Blitz. I don't think that that's likely to happen now. I don't think that, for example, cancelling golden visas yes. um, is going to make any difference. The people who came in under golden visas eight years ago when there were no checks on where the money came from, they're already British citizens, if they've got any kind of clue, because they've had long enough to become UK citizens. So why would they care if the visas get cancelled. Yeah, there's been a lot of gimmicks and very little real action. Um, in terms of sanctions, you know, we, Britain has now got quite a good list. A lot of the list comes in under these new regulations that mean we can just add people who have been also been sanctioned in the EU or the US or other allied countries. And they're only sanctioned for 56 days unless we sanction them for us ourselves. But, you know, the list now is, is good. But it's one thing publishing a list and it's another thing turning that into real action. And what does you know? What does it mean to be on a list in in the in the previous Ukraine crisis in 2014, when Vladimir Putin first sent his troops into Ukraine and annexed Crimea? Um, a lot of people were sanctioned under then EU regulations, which we were part of, and our world-beating legal firms 
worked as hard as they could to get those oligarchs off those sanctions with conspicuous success. Every year, the number of oligarchs sanctioned was eroded and until essentially almost, almost none were left by the end. Our sanctions office is small. It is likely staffed. And the people who are in it are not, you know, serious sanctions lawyers or particular experts. They're, they're civil servants. That's not to say that they're not working incredibly hard, mm. but they're not experienced people. They're not who you need if you're going to go up against oligarchs. Um, in terms of who's doing well, uh, the Americans. Um, the Americans tackle financial crime seriously. They resource it properly. And, and they see it as a, you know, as a, a profit center. If you investigate and prosecute financial crime effectively, there's a lot of money in it. It's a, it's a very profitable thing to do because financial criminals, by definition, have money. So, you know, they have been doing this well. There are signs that the UK is taking baby steps towards doing more of that kind of work, but it is only baby steps. So, yes, in, to answer your question, sorry, long answer to a very short question, that the government has done well at putting names on a list, but... You know, in, but going from you know seizing, say Chelsea Football Club or or you know house in Belgravia, going from there to investigating the origin of the money that bought that house, finding out information on this on that on that money, bringing a criminal case, prosecuting, confiscating the assets, even if that's a civil case, is astonishingly difficult. Now, this is not only difficult because our investigators are underfunded. It's also difficult because if we're going to get evidence from Russia to prove this is money laundering, we're essentially asking Russian kleptocrats to provide evidence against themselves, which is naive in the extreme. So it's possible that this property can never be confiscated. It's, it is what it is. It's here now and it will be here. And there's not much we can do about it. The, the enemy is inside the gates and we just need to get used to that. But it is possible to prevent more money coming here. It is possible to investigate the origin of money before it gets here or, or while it gets here. And, and that is really what I would like now the government to focus on, to say, you know, to as it were, build a wall now and say, what's already here is here, we'll come to that. But we're going to prevent more money coming here because, you know, all the money that comes here is, is inherently corrupting. You know, oligarchs don't stop being oligarchs just because they've flown in to Heathrow or taken their private jet to Biggin Hill. You know, they still want the same things that oligarchs want in, in Russia or Ukraine or, or Azerbaijan or Kazakhstan or wherever. They want preferential access to politicians. They want preferential treatment under the law. They want um, to shut down rival businesses. They want to muzzle journalists. All of these things are what oligarchs want. And all of them are antithetical to a democratic and free society and a free economy. So, you know, I think that there is a becoming coming to be a recognition now that Russian oligarchs shouldn't probably have come here in such numbers, shouldn't have been welcomed so warmly. But it isn't just Russian oligarchs that are the problem. Britain is butler to the world, not just butler to Russians. And it's perfectly possible that the next foreign policy crisis that breaks out, hopefully the Ukraine crisis will be solved soon. But, you know, I see no reason to say that, but hopefully that's just being optimistic. Yeah, it's possible the next crisis will be around Taiwan and we'll look around and be appalled by the number of Chinese oligarchs that have money here. And how did that ever happen? Well, it happened in exactly the same way as the Russian ones. You know, we, we, we welcomed their money. We thought it was good for our economy. And, uh, and it was certainly earned lots of fees for our professional enablers. Um, so, you know, we need to start reacting to crises before they happen. And that requires a complete step change, not just in law enforcement, but also in politics. You know, the reason why police agencies, national crime agency and the serious fraud office, the reason why they don't have the resources they need is not because they chose not to have the resources they need. Um, they weren't given the resources by politicians who chose not to give this any kind of uh, priority in funding. And so it's a political issue. 
And, and, and that's you know, where objections need to be directed. Do you think these sanctions against the oligarchs, will they work? Because we did an event for Intelligence Squared about a week ago, speaking to Owen Matthews, who was in Moscow at the time, who, who said he didn't think they would because actually Putin doesn't really care about the oligarchs. Who will end up suffering as a result of, of the sanctions? Will it, have the, will it have the effect we want it to have on, in terms of foreign policy? Yeah, so I'm not sure what worked means. We haven't, I don't think we've had it defined yet what the sanctions are aiming to achieve. Now, I mean, there was, I suppose, an initial, possibly slightly naive thought that if we sanctioned the oligarchs, that, you know, they would, you know, rush into Putin's office in a mob of infuriated rich people and say, Vladimir, Vladimirovich, can you stop doing this? You've cost us lots of money and my house in Belgravia has been seized. You know, uh, you know I, I mean, obviously I'm being a bit flippant, but that, that obviously hasn't happened. You know, but I suppose there is a, another possibility that if, if the, the oligarchs' assets, if the oligarchs don't operate independently in that manner and can't talk to Putin as independent actors, then essentially their property is an extension of the state's property. So it should be frozen as state property because by depriving it, them of access to it, that we are essentially depriving Vladimir Putin of access to it. Now, that's, a, that, that's a, a justifiable argument and a good reason to, to seize that. If the issue is to try and confiscate the money and to prove that it's of sort of criminal origin in some way, that it's unexplained, that we're a very long way away from doing that. We need to totally change what we're doing in order to look into, say, you know, Roman Abramovich's assets, they're not unexplained. They're completely explained. He bought an oil company in the 1990s and has bought lots of other profitable assets ever since. And then he sold his oil company back to Gazprom and, and did very well out of it. It's completely explained. So, so it's very difficult to make a case that that is corrupt money without doing, without a total different approach to what we have now. But obviously the most dramatic impact that sanctions have had so far have been the sanctions imposed upon Russia itself rather than on individual oligarchs. Uh, the, asset, the, the assets of the central bank have largely been frozen and there's been various restrictions on imports and exports. And that has had an astonishing effect on the ruble, which has hit an all-time low. The Russian banks have been cut off from using you know, the SWIFT network, uh, Visa, MasterCard, and so on have cut links, PayPal, Apple Pay, uh, lots of other payment channels of that nature. And who suffers from those things? Well, that's ordinary Russians who suffer. And, you know, oligarchs don't care about using Apple Pay. They don't take the metro in Moscow anyway. So those are, yeah, they might be an inconvenience to an oligarch, but they are, you know, existential, some of those things to ordinary Russians. And I do worry. I mean, you know, most of my mates in Russia have, have, have left um, either up to now or in the last couple of weeks. But I do worry that ordinary Russians once again will have to pay the price for the misdeeds of their government. You know, they have already lived through the 1990s when the oligarchs looted the state and took everything that wasn't nailed down. To be honest, quite a lot of stuff that was nailed down. And, you know, and now they're going to live through another crisis caused by their same kleptocratic elite who, who steal things and, and pretend that they're patriotic when they're not. You know, and, and I do think we need to be a little bit careful to try and, at the very least, ameliorate the damage to ordinary Russians. Because, you know, what we really want is, is for Putin to, to get his troops out of Ukraine, to back down and to leave. Or if he won't do that for someone else, to get rid of him so someone else can do it. 
And we won't achieve that by starving ordinary Russians. I mean, what that sort of seems to highlight is that we haven't ever invested enough money or enough skill or the expertise in, in places like the National Crime Agency to be able to do anything about this. So do you have much hope for this new kleptocracy unit that we're told is coming? I don't really understand what the kleptocracy unit is. I mean, we already have an international corruption unit. Now, I write about both kleptocracy and international corruption, and I use them as synonyms for each other. So I don't really see how a kleptocracy unit is different to an international corruption unit. I mean, there have been issues with the ICU, which is that it's been largely funded from the development budget. So the work it's done is more, uh, has been limited to places with whom we have a, an aid relationship, you know, places like Malawi, say, or Nigeria, you know, places that, that, that we give development aid to. And that's, so that's where the investigation tends to go. But there's no reason it should be that way. It could investigate, if you change its terms of reference, it could invest, investigate other people. I'm afraid that the kleptocracy unit is just one of the many gimmicks that have been fired out by the government in the last three weeks, rather like sort of, you know, spasms from a, from a dismembered leg being injected with, you know, a strange neurotoxin. So it's, it isn't, I'm not hopeful that that is likely to change anything. However, I do know that the officers in the National Crime Agency are working really hard and they're very frustrated that they don't have the resources they need. And they, but they, you know, and hopefully this, the money from the economic crime levy, which will be going to help them and, and, and other aspects of fighting financial crime, will make a bit more difference. And as I say, it can be, you know, a self-funding mechanism if you do it well enough. So perhaps this hundred million pounds will help. And also, I mean, if we can do things like have anti-slap mechanisms so we can produce more journalism revealing these crimes, and if we have proper reform of companies' house, so we actually know who owns everything, if the information about who owns companies at companies' house is verified. So you can't just write Mickey Mouse or Donald Trump or whatever and, and get away with saying whatever you like and, and lying on the documentation, then there will just be more easily accessible information out there and it won't cost the police as much to do investigations. So there are ways of, yes, increasing the funding to the police so they can take on the oligarchs, but there are also ways of reducing the cost of investigation so it's easier for them to do. And we need to do both. We can be smart about this as well as, you know, resource it properly. Uh, you know, but there is always going to be pushback. You know, Britain is butler to the world, right? We have been for decades. There is an entire class of, of, of our sort of professional services industry that makes its profits from selling services to oligarchs and, you know, kleptocrats and, and their sort of friends and family. Um, they are not going to like this. And, you know, they are people who are well connected at the top of society, they will lobby hard to prevent this happening. So, you know, I hope that the focus remains on this, not just in these two, three, four weeks until hopefully Putin pushes off out of Ukraine and the Ukrainians are free to live their lives again. But, you know, afterwards, we will recognize, we will, we will remember this crisis and, and continue to focus on driving this money or stopping this money from getting here in the first place and then driving what money there is out of this country to, to maintain the integrity of our institutions. Well, on that, uh, perhaps the most pertinent question of the night is, how do we stop being the butler? <laughs> it's, you know, it, it, we need to know why we became a butler in the first place. You know, we had lots of people who were used to moving money around the empire. They couldn't do that anymore. And they looked for a new job, a new way of being. You know, the devil, the devil made work for idle hands. And in a funny sort of way, this reminded me of a program I once heard about in the in in the in Russia when the United States funded nuclear scientists in Russia to prevent them going to work for North Korea. It was essentially a make work program 
for nuclear scientists to stop them going and making dirty bombs for the North Koreans or Al-Qaeda. You know, it may well be that we need something similar for butlers. You know, if they can't work for, for oligarchs, we need to have, you know, make work programs, perhaps funded by USAID, to stop them from going and working for North Korea and finding new loopholes and making new loopholes. You know, I mean, obviously, I'm being silly when I say that, but it is, it does require a cultural change because, you know, we have been very comfortable for a long time with accepting this money into our cities. We've been very comfortable with accepting this money into our football uh, league. You know, I did this, I did Newsnight last week. And as far as I could tell from the tone of the debate, the main concern was, would Chelsea be able to sell merchandise? You know, no disrespect to Chelsea, but who cares if Chelsea can sell merchandise? You know, let's worry about the Ukrainians and worry about Chelsea's merchandise sales later, if at all. Mm. You know, but our focus has always been on what it means for us. You know, what happens to our estate agents if they can't sell houses in West London to oligarchs? What happens to our legal services industry if we can't have oligarchs deciding their cases in the commercial court? Well, let's stop thinking about that, lift our eyes up a little bit and say, what's happening to the Ukrainians? What's happening to the Nigerians? What's happening to the Angolans or the Malaysians whose money is being stolen and laundered and hidden here by oligarchs? And we're helping them do that. You know, if we want to make the world a better place, and I think most people do, but I think probably almost everyone does then, you know, we need to actually realise what's happening. You know, and we can say we're being very generous with, with aid and giving aid. We, the, the biggest gift that we could give to the most desperately poor people in the world is to stop their rulers stealing from them. And the way we could do that is by stopping acting like the butler to the world and stopping helping kleptocrats and oligarchs have all their problems solved and settle in our cities and live here as if they were legal, you know, entirely respectable human beings. We've just got time for a very quick question from the audience. Um, and this is a, a very good one, actually, from Sarah, who says, I sometimes get confused by the label oligarch. What's the difference between an oligarch and just someone who's very rich? <laughs> That's a very good question. Oligarch, is it's an ancient Greek term. I looked this up on Wikipedia, so thank you, Wikipedia. It's an ancient <laughs> Greek term. And oligarchy means rule of the few. So it, it, it derives from, from you know, ancient Greek times. But it, it was adopted in Russia to describe the very small number of men who essentially privatized everything to themselves in the 1990s. And it's been extended now to mean also people have become wealthy because they're friends with Putin. So people have got wealthy in a slightly different way. But essentially, it, it, the, the implication of oligarch is someone who, who combines wealth and power, for whom they're not just wealthy like I don't know, Elon Musk, Richard Branson. They are people with preferential access to power, people whose wealth has such a gravitational effect that it bends the fabric of society and the economy around it in their favor. You know, they obviously, all wealthy people are able to obtain preferential treatment to a certain extent just by virtue of being able to buy things. But the point of our country and our economy and our society is that we have free courts that are available to everyone and that are, that are fair for everyone, that we have a media that will tell the truth, whatever happens. You know, that's what oligarchs want to stop. They want to bend all those things in their favor. So rich people, fine. You know, that's, that's great. By all means, you know, fill your boots, get wealthy, but don't expect preferential treatment just because you're wealthy. That's what oligarchs are, and we don't need them here. And you've spent a lot of time in Russia. So just for people who haven't, give us a sense of just how distorting that, that the power and, and the wealth is in, in the case of oligarchs compared to the rest of the country. I had this extraordinary encounter when I was researching my second book. So this was a while back when 
even then when Nokia's already weren't cool. This is already the age of the iPhone. And I'd started off uh, the day in central Moscow, walking past Maserati showrooms, Bentley showrooms, Gucci boutiques. And I'd taken a train to the Bransk region, which is in far Western Russia, near the border with Belarus. And I was walking through a village where the population was, as far as I could tell, three people. And I was talking to the local priest and he offered to swap me his farm for my Nokia. And wow. that was quite such an, an eye-opening experience. I mean, I was quite tempted actually, but then I, <laughs> you know, and then I thought, how, what would I do with a farm in the Bryansk region? So I didn't take him up on it. But then you have this villages where, which are desperately poor, where people are drinking themselves to death. And meanwhile, you know, their leaders, the top 500 people in the country own everything. And much of what they own is not in Russia, it's right here. It really is a sobering thought. Oliver, thank you so much for talking to us and also to Intelligence Squared. Thank you, Maggie.